What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. This is Pat McCauley, as always. My guest this week is the inspirational Drew Harrisburg. Drew is an Australian-based exercise physiologist um, and a expert on living with type 1 diabetes, uh, specifically using diet and lifestyle to manage the disease um, and make it more manageable on a day-to-day basis. Um, so we talk all about type 1 diabetes and, and diabetes in general and living with diabetes. Um, and we talk also about his story, um, how he was unexpectedly diagnosed at 22 with type 1 diabetes, otherwise um, a healthy individual prior to that, that point in his life, um, how it's altered his life. Uh, we get into the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes Um, why blood sugar spikes are not necessarily a bad thing, Uh, his experience with different diets like paleo, keto, and most recently plant-based, and why he uh, remains plant-based today, Um, why carbs are not the enemy for diabetics, super interesting here, Um, his take on caffeine and alcohol and what that's like as a type 1 diabetic, Um, what happens when you fast with diabetes, Um, and much, much more. Um, really interesting conversation. I've never had somebody on, uh, specifically talking about type one diabetes. Um, so I found it fascinating, but even more than that, just the amount of data that a type one diabetic has, um, on food and blood glucose levels and all these different factors that most of us don't get instant feedback on throughout our day-to-day life when we eat something or don't sleep or whatever, um, and kind of the the takeaways he's getting from that data just on how to live healthier in general um, is super interesting. So uh, Drew's a great dude. Definitely follow him. Uh, he just came out with a new ebook that I'll leave a link to, um, and I will let him tell the rest. Without further ado, the one and only Drew Harrisburg. All right, Drew. Well, welcome, man. We were, we were talking a little bit uh, before this. I definitely need to get uh, to Sydney at some point. Um, so for the listeners, you've been based in Sydney for your entire life? Yeah. Yeah. I've lived here my whole life, um, just near Bondi Beach. So right on the coast, access to you know most beautiful beaches, good surf, good waves. Um, it's a little cold now. It's get, getting into the winter time, but I mean, for what's you, cold? Yeah, I, I, it's what's embarrassing cold? to say this. <laughs> from, you're from Boston. I don't even want to say, but for us, it's cold. It's like, uh, yeah. you know, mornings are seven degrees Celsius, which is, yeah, I'm still swimming, you know, without a wetsuit. Right. So it's not that cold. There's yeah, no ice, sure. no snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we were, um, I, I know I was saying before this again that you are really the guy, and I know we had connected probably probably a couple of years ago, I think when I first heard of you, I probably shot you a message way back in the day um, because I've never done an episode on type one diabetes and in especially somebody that, you know, uses food and lifestyle to manage it, mm. um, which I don't know many people out there talking about that. Uh, you probably know many, but um, so yeah, man, I've been f- fired up to have you on for a long time and I'm, I'm super pumped to, uh, yeah. to have you. Mate, I've been looking forward to it as well. I feel like we've been trying to make this happen for ages. So finally, we've done it. Let's uh, let's let's get into it, eh? Let, let's rock it. Yeah. So so I know you on the type one diabetes front. 
started in your early 20s. What was, just purely out of curiosity, what was your life like before that? And how do you think about that diagnosis? Do you think about it as something your lifestyle helped start? Or is it purely genetic? Like, how do you look at it pre and kind of post that diagnosis? So pre-diagnosis, which was, I was about 22 years old, right? So I had a great childhood, great upbringing, very health conscious, loved sport, loved exercise. You know, I went to university to study sports science before I even had diabetes. So I, I wanted to be a part of the sport and exercise science sort of community. And I wanted to work in that field. Um, always loved training. I was always in the gym and doing outdoor stuff and, you know, similar to stuff that you do sort of that triathlon style modalities um so you know i I, and i ate a healthy what i thought was a healthy diet i was very health conscious you know both my parents are doctors so we we had an understanding of what a what a healthy lifestyle looked like and then sort of out of the blue i got this diagnosis right and in the six to twelve months leading up to it it was very it was confusing because I had all these strange signs and symptoms that I didn't know were related to diabetes at the time. Now it's like so obvious. Once you learn what they are, there's like a handful of symptoms that are just so damn obvious. But at the time, I didn't know what was going on. So I was confused and, you know, I was kind of scared because I'd lost 13 kilos, you know, lost lost a lot of muscle, lost a lot of fat. I was very skinny. I was constantly thirsty needing to um wake up in the night to to go to the bathroom to to urinate because i was drinking so much um always hungry exhausted like all of these things that you just when you're in it you don't see it really you you know something's wrong but you, you can't put your finger on what it is and then yeah i mean if we've got some blood tests done long story short got some blood tests done got this diagnosis and i i learned what type 1 diabetes was which is it's this autoimmune disease. So I certainly, I didn't think it was my fault at all. And it's not because your immune system essentially attacks the pancreas and destroys the cells that produce insulin. So a healthy pancreas would make these uh, cells that produce insulin. So when you eat a meal, your blood glucose will go up a little bit and then your pancreas will secrete insulin, which will bring your blood glucose back into normal range. When you have type 1 diabetes, that system doesn't work anymore. So you have to inject your insulin or you have to be attached to a pump 24-7, which like drip feeds the insulin into your bloodstream. So, you know, I knew it wasn't my fault, but I was definitely like, why me? Like, what did I do to deserve this? How did this happen to me? Like, you still, I had all these questions that I want to answer, which were, you know, what actually causes it? Like, why does the immune system decide to attack the pancreas and destroy those cells? And was there anything that I did that maybe caused this to happen? And it turns out there's a perfect storm, what they call a perfect storm of sort of variables, right? So there is a genetic um, sort of predisposition, which I, I I didn't have a family history of it, so I didn't even know that that was on the radar. Um, there's things related to your microbiome. So your gut changes a little bit. Maybe you get a sickness or a virus or a bacteria, which can trigger your immune system. Um other other environmental triggers and and basically they all come together and that's why it can happen at 22 years old or six months old it can really hit anyone at any time so yeah it was a confusing time but um i would say that before my diagnosis i was already health conscious i already cared a lot about 
you know, living a long, healthy life and my performance and fitness and all that stuff. And since being diagnosed, it's just ramped up to another level. Yeah. Yeah. Can you define or, or at least uh, educate us on what exactly the main difference is between type one and type two? Yeah. So as I mentioned, type one is that autoimmune condition. So your own immune system destroys the cells of the pancreas so you can't produce insulin anymore and then for the rest of your life you have to administer your insulin right type 2 is a little different so the way that type 2 manifests is not autoimmune so the immune system's functioning normally Um, it's not attacking the pancreas at all it starts off with insulin resistance at the cellular level so the cells that are meant to you know uh, take up so the insulin will like Think about like a lock and a key, right? Insulin is the key to the cell. It unlocks this gateway so glucose can enter the cell. When you have type 2, that key doesn't work anymore. So you become resistant to insulin. You're still producing it. The pancreas is working normally in the beginning. Um, You just can't open the gateway to the cell so glucose from the blood can go into the muscles and into the liver. Um, But over time, you can actually become... um, insulin dependent as a type 2 so your pancreas burns out it's working so hard to produce more and more insulin that you get this burnout and then your beta cell function goes down so low that you actually need to inject insulin as well so the the symptoms between type 1 and type 2 are the same high blood glucose that is the the common characteristic in both cases whether you have autoimmune type 1 or you have insulin resistance type 2 both cases result in high blood glucose levels, right? In the one case, it's because you can't produce any insulin at all. In the other case, the insulin just isn't working, right? So they, have, they share a common characteristic and the management is actually quite similar. And I think this is where people don't understand. And I would even argue that for people without diabetes, these principles um, apply to everyone. But basically, the more insulin sensitive you can become, the better you'll be able to manage your blood glucose levels, the more predictable your blood glucose response to meals will be, right? So if you have type 2 and you're insulin resistant, insulin's not working properly, you eat a high-carbohydrate meal, the glucose is going to build up in your bloodstream, right? Because it's just not able to exit the blood and go into the cells. That's where we want the glucose to go, right? But if you can increase your insulin sensitivity, which we can get into later, you know, through diet and exercise as the main two, you'll be able to get the, the uh, glucose into the cells a little bit more easily, right? So you're a little bit less insulin resistant. And over time, you can actually reverse insulin resistance. You know, it takes a while, but you can get there eventually. And the same applies to type 1 diabetes. The more insulin sensitive you become, the easier it is to get the glucose into the cell and it's more predictable. So you're going to have less of these highs and lows. You're going to have less time elevated so you know the the way you manage diabetes is very similar between the two yeah thank you for that yeah so how did life change when that when when you were diagnosed like what what do you have to do as a type 1 diabetic in in the follow-up question to that is when did you start realizing that you know, how you ate and how you lived really impacted how you were able to manage that. Mm. So life changed very rapidly, um, you know, overnight. The way it works is this autoimmune attack happens for months, right? So you're slowly reducing the function of your pancreas. The immune system is just destroying these beta cells over time. 
but it doesn't really show up as diabetes until you're like a couple percent left of those cells, right? So you could have like 97% of the cells are getting destroyed, but some of those cells are still working and you're still okay. Like you're not full-blown diabetic, right? Mm-hmm. But when, when they get destroyed completely, which is, they call it, it's a, it's a horrible term, but like there's this, it's called the honeymoon period. So it's when you're diagnosed, but you've still got a little bit of beta cell function, your pancreas is working a little bit, you're in the honeymoon phase, right? I wish they would come up with a new term because there's nothing romantic about that phase of, of diabetes. Um, but then once your pancreatic beta cells aren't working anymore at all, you've got full-blown diabetes. And that's when you now completely need insulin. You need injections every single day. So the main change is you can't eat meals without insulin anymore. So every time you sit down for a meal, you have to count the carbohydrates, how many grams of carbs in the meal. And then you've got to calculate, and everyone's different, your individual ratio, which means for one unit of insulin, how many grams of carbs can you eat? So let's say most people, when they're roughly 1 to 10, 1 to 15 grams, right? So meaning one unit of insulin will allow you to eat 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrate. That's sort of like where people start. It's kind of this blanket way of doing it, but you get more precise as you start living with diabetes for longer, you figure it out. So let's say I sit down for a meal, there's 45 grams of carb, and I think my ratio is one to 15, I'll need three units of insulin, right? So all of a sudden, I used to just eat meals you know, mindlessly. I could just pick something up, eat it. Now I've got to calculate every time I eat, I've got to inject insulin, make sure the ratio is correct, you got to wait 15 minutes after you inject, then you eat your meal. If there's fat and protein in the meal, it'll change the ratio, so it gets quite confusing. So for the first few months, you know, life changed so quick. It was like insulin at every meal, um, finger pricks to check my blood glucose 15 times a day. At that point, I wasn't wearing a CGM, which I am wearing now, but for the first like 10 years of diabetes, I was doing 15 finger pricks a day so before and after meals, um, before and after workouts, in the middle of a workout, before bed, first thing in the morning. So you're just constantly managing and, and collecting data and bringing in numbers and logging. And it's just, it became so mathematical and, and you know, very, you lose that like automated, just live your life, you know, sort of mm-hmm. way of going about things. And everything's about the numbers. How much insulin am I giving? And is it safe? Because the complications, if you get the dose wrong, is pretty scary. And that was one of the first conversations I had with the diabetes team when I was diagnosed. They basically say to you, you're going to be taking insulin for the rest of your life. If you overdose on insulin, you can die. Um, if If you go to sleep with too much insulin in your system, you can die in your sleep. If you don't manage your diabetes well long-term, you can go blind, you can lose your kidney function, nerve disease, nerve damage, you might need your foot or toe amputated, like all of these just horrible things that you hear straight Mm -hmm. away. So initially, there was so much fear. So the first like one to two years after being diagnosed, it was just fear, like scared of what's my future gonna look like? How long am I gonna live? My risk of cardiovascular disease is now just skyrocketed. you know, and life just became very, you know, almost like robotic. Like I had to calculate the numbers and just focusing on keeping myself in range at all times. And 
you know, trying to avoid this because I don't want to go high or do this. You know, it was just, it was, I lost that freedom and that liberty to just enjoy my life, which finally came back, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. So when does the idea, obviously now you eat a predominantly plant-based diet. When does, when do you start realizing that? I mean, obviously, I guess you have so much data now you're looking at real time, you know, feedback from the meals you eat. Yeah. Um, is that when you start to lean that way or was there information you found or studies you found um, that made you lean that way? Or how did, how did you end up there and, and realize that what you ate was so important with it? So the day after I was diagnosed, this was like probably the most important day of my diabetes journey. And luckily for me, it came literally the day after I was diagnosed. So I got this diagnosis in the, the hospital, the clinic. And at that point, I was actually not in, not in the position that most people with diabetes are diagnosed in. Most people get rushed to hospital in a coma or unconscious because their blood glucose has gotten so high over the last, say, six months while they didn't know they had diabetes. And they develop what's called ketoacidosis, which is like so many ketones in your bloodstream that you become acidotic. So the, the pH of your blood is acidic, basically, and you, you're essentially unconscious rushed in a uh, to, to hospital in an ambulance check your blood glucose they see it's like 20 times the normal range immediately try to bring it back down using insulin right that wasn't my case i was fine like i was i mean i was unwell and i was like i mentioned before tired thirsty all those things lost a lot of weight but i wasn't i didn't have ketoacidosis and there's a few reasons why i think that's the case but we, we can get into that later but basically the day after I was diagnosed, I was told to just, just go home and live like a normal day that I would, eat the meals I would normally eat, do the activities I would normally do, and just collect the numbers of my blood glucose and how it fluctuates over the day. Then come back a few days later, later and we'll give you insulin and we'll figure out how much insulin you're going to need for this activity, how much you'll need for this food, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, they sent me home, wake up the next morning eat a breakfast I would usually eat and my blood glucose spikes because I wasn't giving insulin, right? So they said, don't worry about the insulin yet. We'll figure that out later. So they told me like, expect some high blood glucose levels as you don't have any insulin, your pancreas isn't working properly, but don't worry. It's just short term. We'll fix you soon. Eat a breakfast, blood glucose, five times the normal range. So it's meant to be about four to five uh, millimoles. That's the units we use. It went up to 25, like, like massive. Anyway, so I write it in the logbook. Then the next thing that I, I was going to do during the day was go to the gym, right? So I head off to the gym. I've got this high blood glucose. I'm pissed off. I'm in a bad mood. I'm not happy about it. Go into the gym and it's like happy place. I can just get a good workout. Don't have to worry about anything. For, for, the, for those 45 to 60 minutes, not even thinking about diabetes, don't even care. Do a great workout get out of the gym and I prick my finger, go to test again, I'm expecting to, to see 25 and my blood glucose is back down into the normal range. And I'm like, how did that just happen? Like, I'm not taking insulin. Sure, my pancreas is working a little bit, but it's also not working that well because I've just seen my blood glucose go up to 25. So clearly I'm compromised, yet I'm now back in the normal range. So that was the first moment I, I, I realized that this is a lifestyle factor that actually can be an amazing tool and that I've now regained some control 
and I feel like I'm a little bit um, more confident about my future now because I'm like, all right, I, I can use exercise. This is a, this is a great tool. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time I discovered what exercise could do, um, and then I sort of went on this journey of of learning all the different modes of exercise and how it affects blood glucose because not all of them will have the same impact. Some modes of exercise increase your blood glucose, some decrease it. You know, this, it's very complex, really? but yeah, it's, it's, it can be very complicated. And it depends on what time of day you're doing it. Have you eaten a meal? Do you have insulin in your system or not? Like all of these things. Have you had a coffee? Like millions of factors. Yeah, what, what's an example of like, is it like high intensity training versus like zone two yeah, type exactly. endurance training? That's the exactly. difference. Yeah, yeah you'd, have, you'd probably have a good understanding of it from the, the endurance sport side of things. But basically... The lower to more moderate intensities um, utilize fuel a bit differently, as you would know. So your zone two, low to moderate, continuous training, that steady state sort of cardiovascular training, routinely will reduce your blood glucose over time because you're actually using a higher or like a predominant amount of fuel is coming from fat sources rather than glucose. So if you compare it to high intensity training or even high intensity strength training, you're using a glycolytic system. The body wants glucose for that sort of stuff. So think about sprinting on a bike or doing high intensity intervals or lifting heavy weights. That's a glucose source. We want glucose to fuel that activity. Whilst for the low intensity moderate, we want fat to fuel that. It's a slower burning fuel. You can maintain for longer, but anything of that high intensity, glucose is a predominant fuel source. So Let's say you wake up in the morning. Let's say you have type 1 diabetes. You wake up in the morning. You've got no insulin in your system from like injecting for a meal or anything like that. Or at least you've got lower insulin levels at that point. And you drink a coffee. I learned this the hard way. This is how I figured this out. <laughs> drink a coffee. right? I didn't know at this point that caffeine influenced blood glucose. And it does you know, quite a lot. Have a coffee. And then I would, I would go to the beach and do like sprints on the soft sand. Um, and then I check my blood glucose after, and it's 25, five times the normal range. The same level of glucose in my blood as when I ate a high-carb meal with oats and banana, but I hadn't eaten anything that day, right? So after that sprint training with a coffee, I've had an equivalent blood glucose to eating a high-carb meal, and that's all come from inside the body. So your liver pushes glucose out into the bloodstream to fuel that activity because your liver knows you know, essentially that the coffee or caffeine um, tr- triggers adrenaline and adrenaline tells the body, okay, fight or flight, we need glucose to perform, run away from the predator, whatever the body mm-hmm. thinks it's doing, liver will push glucose into the blood. Then you start your sprint training and you get your heart rate up to, you know, let's say above 85% of your max heart rate. That's another stimulus for the liver to go, okay, we need more glucose. So you've just got this glucose tap that's just been turned on to fuel that activity and in response to the caffeine and next minute you've got this high blood glucose level. So, you know, I've just slowly over time started to learn all these little lifestyle things that would influence my blood glucose levels and then I would have to figure out ways to mitigate that effect or attenuate it as much as I could, which has taken years, but I've sort of finally got there, you know, just years of self-experimentation, non-stop trial and error, lots of mistakes, lots of learnings. Um, but finally, you know, just, just getting to the point now where I can understand, you know, if I do this, this is most likely the result. How can I avoid that? 
switch it to the AM versus PM, get a bit of insulin on board, eat a meal, don't eat a meal, make sure I sleep well, like all of these factors play a role. Yeah, totally. And, and how do you know, because it's not completely black and white, right? When you have the, the big glucose spike to 25 or, or whatever, like how do you know when it's bad? I, I've heard you talk in the past about like the flatness of, of the curves and things like that. And right. that's kind of the, I guess, traditional understanding of what you want to stay within. Um, but how do you, based on what you know with all the exercise and all the food stuff, um, how do you know what's a good one, what's a bad one? Um, and I guess maybe maybe what what do you think we traditionally misunderstand about that? Great question. This is very topical because at the moment CGMs are being used by general population to, you know, some people call it a fat loss tool, some call it a longevity tool, others say a lot. It's, a lot yeah. in my world, in the triathlon world, everybody's wearing them now. Right, and and that part of the use for for athletes and elite athletes, I I think I give more leeway to that. I I, I can understand that a little bit more. But in the general population who just chuck on a CGM and think that it's going to help them lose weight if they keep their blood glucose flat all day, zero evidence to support that. It's just not evidence-based. And in fact, a study came out only a couple of days ago. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Um, what did they call it? So you know, you know the term precision nutrition, right? Where it's uh, essentially tailoring your, your nutrition or your diet to match your physiology because everyone's a little different and we can figure out what does this individual need to eat to, to you know optimize optimize their physiology well this paper came out i think it was called imprecision nutrition because what they did was they put cgms on subjects and they gave them the same meal multiple times and it showed that the variability in response to the exact same meal in the same person was just all over the place there was no mm-hmm. There was no clear trend or pattern. So like you could eat breakfast X today, the exact same breakfast tomorrow and completely different blood glucose response, right? Because there's so many factors that influence it. So people who wear a CGM and they see like a little, you know, maybe a little rise and they want to keep it flat, right? They see a little rise from the the particular breakfast that they ate. They might pathologize that rise and go, you know what, that food... I can no longer eat that. It made me spike, mm-hmm. quote unquote spike, which mm-hmm. is a very, very hard thing to define. Whilst if they ate that meal seven times in a row, seven days in a row, this, the curve would look different each time. So to eliminate foods based on one response to a meal is just it's, it's sort of irresponsible and stupid, especially if you're eliminating healthy foods from your diet in pursuit of this perfect flatline blood glucose, which we don't even have evidence for that that's going to help you live longer or lose more body fat. So it's, it's messy. The terrain is a bit of, a little bit messy in terms of CGM use in most people. But what you're looking for after a meal is an elevation in blood glucose, completely normal, right? So let's say your blood glucose starts at about four to six millimoles, I've got to think about the units for um, the units you, you guys use. I think it's like 80 to 120. We should probably do a little quick quick Google and get okay. a, a chart up, but I think it's 80 to 120. I'll let you do that while I explain that. So for me, it would be like four to six is the range. If four my to six, four to six what? millimoles, 
um, which you're in milligrams per deciliter, I believe. And I think it's 80 to 120 or 70 to 120, something like that. I might be wrong. Okay, blood sugar conversion here. Yeah, it's important to know these numbers, you know, as I explain this because... You said two to four? Uh, no, so four to, okay. let's, let's call it 5.5 or six. Four to six is probably easiest. Okay, so I believe, so it'd be milligrams per deciliter? Yes, that's what you, you would use there. So 72 There we go, 70. Four, yep. And then six would be 108. Okay, all right, perfect. So let's call 70 to 100. That's, yep. That would be sort of the sweet spot. And most people without diabetes are just going to be in that majority of the time. Don't even have to worry, don't have to think about it occasionally what you're going to do is you're going to eat a meal and your blood glucose is going to go above 100, which is fine. It's absolutely fine. So people think that if you go above 100 or, or 120, um, that it's, it's an indication that your body is you know, not performing well enough or you're not insulin sensitive or you know maybe you're a little bit insulin resistant or you should not eat carbohydrates because it's bad for you. No, because it's, it's going to be elevated for such a short period of time. As long as it comes back down into range within one to two hours, you've got nothing to worry about, right? So you're looking at that area under the curve. So let's say your blood glucose goes up, comes down nice and quickly, and it has a pronounced elevation. I don't even want to say spike because that, that term, it's such a, how do you even define what a, what's the difference between a spike and an elevation, right? So you, you go up, you come back down, and you're back in range, fine. Compare that to someone who goes up and stays up for three, four, five hours, then comes down back into range, and you look at the area under the curve, you're gonna be time out of range is gonna be a lot longer in that, in that individual. So the spike, so to speak, is actually what you want. You want the glucose to quickly enter the blood and quickly get out, and then you're back into normal range. That's what you want. You don't want it to be elevated for a long period of time, four, five, six hours before coming back down into range. That's the problem. So these people who are wearing CGMs are pathologizing a normal spike, which is actually the indication that your body's working just how it should. Glucose is entering fast and exiting fast. That's what you want. If it's elevated for long periods of time, that can be problematic long-term. So then I would say, let, let's say you, you put a CGM on you know, you know, half the population, and a good chunk of those people actually see that, well, when I do eat some foods, I'm elevated for very long periods of time before coming back down to normal. Then that's a useful tool because now we can see these people may be at risk of insulin resistance. Maybe they already have it or undiagnosed diabetes. You know, a lot of people are walking around with insulin resistance and undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. They don't even, they don't even know it. So it can work in those people. But for the majority of people, your body's so well designed it's it, it functions beautifully you don't have to start wearing these devices and pathologizing normal physiology yeah yeah totally yeah you mentioned carbs there and at least as like someone with a very basic understanding i would say more so of type 2 diabetes there's this idea that carbs and sugar um are the enemy and those are the things that a caused 
again, I'm talking type two, type two diabetes, and then are the things you want to avoid. And those always seem to be the ones people are paying attention to um, and are the culprit. How do you look at that now? Um, I think people are always like leaning towards more high protein in in quotes, Mm. if you will, um, versus these, you know, foods like fruit and maybe healthy grains and things like that. So how do you think about those? My thoughts have have changed a lot over the years. So immediately after being diagnosed, I went on Google and tried to find what is the best diet to reverse quote unquote diabetes, which you can't reverse type one, you can reverse type two. And what I landed on was a sort of like a low carb paleo slash keto. I fell into that community very quickly and it made sense to me at the time. Because if you've got a condition where you're unable to tolerate glucose very well, well then wouldn't it make sense to remove glucose or at least limit it in your diet? So to me that made sense. And I was like, yeah, I should be on a low carb diet. I, I, you know, I can't tolerate glucose well. Um, so I'm gonna give it a go. And, and I went on this paleo diet and keto diet for, for years. You know, six, seven years on a paleo diet. Then I went into a keto diet and reduced my carbs even more. And I had some great results short term, like some really, really good results. Like my insulin requirements were extremely low. I didn't need much insulin at all. My blood glucose was pretty flat. Like it was a low, it was low a lot. And it was, you know, when I say low, I mean like in the normal range, it wasn't high very often. And it was flat for most of the day. And you know, a couple months after that, you know, after sticking to the strict keto diet, I started to run into some, some problems. And most of the problems were related to like loss of insulin sensitivity, which can also be called insulin resistance. But in this case, I don't think it was like pathological insulin resistance. It was just, I'd lost glucose tolerance and my insulin wasn't working as well as it was before. So like every morning when I would wake up, during this keto phase, my blood glucose would be high. And then the next day, it was higher and higher. And it was just day after day, my fasting blood glucose was just getting up there. I couldn't control it. I'd give more insulin at night. I'd give more insulin at meals. And I just could not get my blood glucose to stay in this normal range. I was just sitting high all the time. So I'd sort of become resistant to the insulin that I was injecting, which is a problem. All right, I'm already not producing any insulin, so I need whatever I'm injecting, I need that to work properly, and it wasn't. So then I realized, well, if all I'm eating is fat and protein, basically, and of course I was still eating fiber, but non-carb, non-starchy vegetables, I wasn't eating much fruit at all. Um, a lot of saturated fat, a lot of coconut oil, eggs, fatty meat. Um, you know, so I was... I, I w- I wasn't doing a very unhealthy keto low carb diet. I was still doing a relatively healthy version because I was still eating leafy greens, lots of fruit, lots of fi- not fruit, lots of fiber, um, you know, nuts and seeds, olive oil, avocado. I was still eating all of that stuff and fish and stuff, but I was also eating a lot of saturated fat, a lot of um, meat, a lot of uh, eggs, coconut oil, all that stuff, right? So. If I was eating all of that, but my blood glucose still wasn't that great, I, I knew that I had to, to try something different. I knew I had to, to try to fix this. And as I mentioned offline, so a friend of mine, Simon Hill, who's obviously known for, for the Proof podcast, and you know he's a plant-based nutrition, master nutrition, um, he, he just gently 
nudged me towards um, a plant-based diet. And the way he did it was he showed me some lecture slides of um, Dr. McMacken, who just delivered a talk about diabetes. Who's a, she's a published researcher, showing that you know these high-carb diets, high-carb whole food plant-based diets, are really good for for uh, helping people manage their diabetes and actually improving not just the symptoms but kind of getting to the root cause of some of these you know, problems of insulin resistance. So I was like, look, I've got to try it. I'm, I'm, right now I'm stuck. Um, you know, it's what I'm currently doing isn't working. I've got to give something a go. So that's when I sort of realized that when I made this transition to adding carbohydrates into my diet, eating more plants um, and reducing my protein and saturated fat intake, that my blood glucose levels and insulin sensitivity came back quickly like really, really quickly, just in a couple of weeks. And essentially, like after, I mean, I've been eating a plant-based diet for five years now, but after just a few months, I realized like how, how this kind of works. And basically, when you eat more polyunsaturated fats, less saturated fats, so think about um, olive oil, avocado, nuts and seed, you know, flax, all of that sort of stuff, you can improve your insulin sensitivity just by swapping out the kind of fats that you're eating. So from saturated, transitioning to the unsaturated fats. Then, once your sensitivity improves and you start to eat more carbohydrates, you can tolerate the carbs a lot better. So now, you know, five years after transitioning from keto to plant-based, I'm eating hundreds of grams of carbs every day and my insulin requirements are still very low, and my time in range, which is a very important like biomarker or indicator of your blood glucose control, is over 90% day after day after day. So carbs were never the problem. Carbs were, they, they sort of, um, they reveal or trigger the symptom, which is high blood glucose. But the cause of the high blood glucose was actually the lack of um, glucose tolerance and the insulin resistance underpinning it right so of course if you are insulin resistant and you eat a high carb meal you're going to see high blood glucose but that doesn't necessarily mean you can point the finger at the carbohydrate and say well carbs make your sugar go up because in a different context where saturated fat is low total fat is a little bit lower too and more of your fats are coming from unsaturated fats those same carbohydrates don't have the same impact on your blood glucose levels so the context is so important so for people on a keto diet who are eating a lot of saturated fat and then decide maybe they want to break their diet on a weekend and have a blowout meal on a Saturday, let's say, and they eat carbohydrates and their carbohydrate tolerance sucks because they've been on a keto diet for a year, they're going to see a high blood glucose and they're going to instantly demonize the carbohydrate and say, well, I knew it, see, got to go back to my keto diet, carbs, carbs are the devil, right? So the context is so important and I think a lot of people are not seeing that picture because they don't get the objective insights into their health as some someone with type 1 diabetes does because when you're wearing a cgm let's say you don't have diabetes you're wearing a cgm and you're trying to see your blood glucose fluctuations throughout the day you're only getting half the picture you're just getting the glucose data you don't know what your insulin is doing but when you have type 1 we inject all of our insulin so we now know not only what does the blood glucose fluctuations look like, but how much insulin is required to eat that diet, live that lifestyle, move in that way. So that you need those two things. You need, the insul- you need to know what, what is the insulin and what is the glucose response. 
because without knowing the insulin, really you're only getting half half the story there. And I think a lot of people mm. are sort of missing that. Yeah, yeah, that was super interesting. So would you say in, I mean, I guess maybe this is me pathologizing here a bit, but would you say that by eating health-promoting foods, food that promote the health holistically of the body, then better allows the body to do what it knows how to do to maintain optimal health. And therefore, maybe you get these outcomes. And the reason I ask is, and people listening, I sound like a, a, a broken record because I say this all the time. Like, I really believe we get caught up so much in the, the macros and the, the protein word and the carbs word and the sugar word and all this crap when we just need to eat foods that promote our health and look mm. at it more as a whole. Um, and for so many years, that blinded me into making what I thought were healthy decisions, but were not healthy decisions. Um, and now it's just like, I look at the food as a whole. Where'd this come from? Will it promote my health based on everything I know? Yes or no. I don't care about the carb content. I don't care about the protein content. And then if you do that, your body functions properly and can... Again, I don't know how this relates at all to diabetes, but that's how I kind of think about things as you're talking. Mate, I could not agree more. And I think the perfect example is people who wear a CGM, they don't have diabetes, and their sole purpose is to just keep a flatline blood glucose level. All right. Well, what are they going to do to achieve that? They're going to eliminate carbohydrate-containing plants, right? So grains, legumes, fruit vegetables that contain carbohydrates they're off the table right let's just say let's even let's let's take this extreme let's go a carnivore carnivore approach right no plants at all they wear a cgm and they see that their blood glucose is basically flat all day long what they're doing is they're they're minimizing this complex system like you just mentioned into one biomarker blood glucose yes. right yeah and they're forgetting well, what is that impact on, on, on lipids in the bloodstream? Sure, you're measuring glucose in the bloodstream with CGM, but what if you had a lipid device that was measuring, I don't know, LDL, right? Or ApoB in your bloodstream. Then the picture's gonna look so different, right? So if you just you know zoom in on one biomarker and try to live your life in relation to that one biomarker, again, you're too close to it to see the big picture. The big picture is what you just mentioned. What are the foods that promote overall health to the health to your gut? Like you need fiber, heart health, lipid, vessels, liver health, organ. Like if you're just focusing on blood glucose, you're not going to eat a diet that promotes all of those things. In fact, you're probably going to eliminate most of the foods that are good for your overall health in pursuit of good blood glucose levels. So yes, I think that we need to Stop being so obsessed with the data, so data-driven, and stop falling for the trends of, you know, this is the new device that's in because, you know, some biohacker has decided that it's the way to live a long life and have less disease. It's just, it's not evidence-based. It's not evidence-based. It's just a story. Story people are telling themselves. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's also things, you know, when I think of exercise as well and um, you know, cold plunge or any, anything that, that produces some kind of stress. Obviously, like if you're looking at data, 
that may look ugly in the short term, right? If you go do a marathon, that probably looks really ugly for, you know, the next 12 to 24 hours. But in the long run, that may be a health promoting thing in the long run. So like to hyper focus on what looks kind of like a negative stress in the short term could actually be a benefit continuously done over a long period of time. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think the best example of this is if we look at real world populations who live the longest with the least disease. Like to me, that is like such a great way to identify what lifestyle factors are important and meaningful versus what is not. So if you look at these population groups and you go, okay, here's a group of people that live to be a hundred or at least nearer to that. They have more centenarians than other populations and they have the least amount of diabetes and they have the least amount of cardiovascular disease. What do they eat every day? And you look at their diets and it's high carbohydrate, lots of plants. So like the Adventist health study showed that the, type, the, the, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in that population group was significantly lower than majority of, of other places in the world. Yet their diet is made up majority of plants and carbohydrates. So right. if carbohydrates are causing type 2, they should be seeing a lot of type 2 in that population group. But they're not. Their rates are extremely low. Same goes for a, a whole list of other diseases. So... Yeah, if we zoom in on a biomarker, you can create this little story and make it look fancy. But if you really want to see what works in the real world, we've got the studies. Like they are out there. There's some long-term yeah. epidemiology studies. And I know people are like, it's epidemiology, it's rubbish. It's a lot more powerful than a couple of anecdotes in the biohacking world, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you mentioned, well, a while back, you mentioned coffee. So where, where are you kind of at in, in terms of coffee and then uh, in terms of alcohol? How do those impact type 1 diabetes in your experience? So I, I love coffee. I still drink it every day. Um, I think it, it, it is very health promoting. I just think you need to understand timing of, of intake and what to avoid around that intake. So generally speaking, caffeine will promote adrenaline which can increase the amount of glucose that the liver pushes into the bloodstream so i know in myself if i drink a coffee even just a plain black coffee so coffee and water no milk no sugar nothing and i don't take any insulin before it my blood glucose will elevate quite significantly it'll go well out of the normal range if i give a little bit of insulin before my coffee i can mitigate that and i can bring my glucose back into the normal range if I drink caffeine first thing in the morning with no insulin and do a hard workout, we're talking I need a lot more insulin to, to mitigate that spike. So now I'm at a point where I can drink coffee. I just need to know, you know, what activity am I going to be doing after it? If it's zone two or more aerobic cardiovascular training, I need less insulin with the coffee. I can actually sometimes get away with no insulin because the exercise, like I mentioned earlier the exercise can bring you back into the normal range like what happened the day after i was diagnosed and the way that works which we didn't really speak about is there's a pathway where glucose enters the muscles which is non-insulin dependent you don't need any insulin to be that key to unlock the gateway just the, the simple act of contracting muscles 
is the gate is the opening of the gateway so it's like a sponge so when you do you know go for a run a ride a swim or do a full body circuit the more muscles you contract the more of these gateways to the muscles you're opening and glucose can enter freely you don't need insulin right so if i'm going to do a workout like that i don't need much insulin because i know that glucose is going to get into the cells but if i'm doing a workout that isn't um, necessarily going to open up those gateways as easily then yeah i'm going to need a bit a bit more insulin so that one's tricky so caffeine in general increases your blood glucose alcohol does the opposite which is kind of interesting so mm. if you drink alcohol with type 1 diabetes the major risk is actually that you're going to go low below the normal range so the biggest risk short term is going low if you have type 1 diabetes going low is like very very dangerous you don't want to go too far below the normal range because you're basically starving your brain of glucose you will lose consciousness you get you, you sort of you completely lose your cognition you don't you, you can barely talk you forget what you're doing if you, and if, if this happens when you're say driving a car or you know in a position where you're, you're in danger it can be extremely problematic seizure coma death and that's what we really want to avoid day to day if you're high right like let's say very very high for long periods of time there's no short term there's not well, there's not no i wouldn't say no but it's very it's less dangerous short term a lot of the danger becomes long term so if you're high for long periods of time months and years that's when you develop retinopathy so blindness um nephropathy so kidney damage nerve damage all that stuff right so what happens when you drink alcohol is actually your risk of going low increases and alcohol actually the the symptom of being tipsy and drunk feels like very similar at least to when your blood glucose goes low so you're hypoglycemic they're similar mm. you know what i mean like you're sort of lightheaded yeah, you're a bit a yeah. little bit out of it so you don't know whether you're actually low from you know your blood glucose going low or or is it the alcohol making you feel drunk but if you are both at the same time and you could say fall asleep you, you pass out or you drink too much or you go to bed and your blood glucose slowly goes down overnight and you can't feel it and you don't wake up that's when people die in their sleep so there's lots of cases of people with type 1 unfortunately they go out for a big night with friends they drink too much they may have a little bit too much insulin on board because maybe they ate some food while they were out as well and then over the night the liver doesn't put as much glucose out so that the alcohol inhibits the, the liver from pushing the glucose out which keeps you alive and keeps your blood glucose up and you can pass away in your sleep so alcohol is a pretty scary one i don't drink i barely drink anymore i used to you know in my early 20s before i was diabetic i would i would enjoy some drinks with some mates and i would have some big nights out I stopped doing that completely. So for like six, seven years, I barely had a drink. And over the last couple of years, I've added some social drinking back in. So like I have a whiskey with my mates or a wine at dinner or a beer here and there, but I probably won't have more than two drinks, maximum three in a sitting. Like that would be the absolute uh, maximum. Yeah. Yeah, what happens when you fast? Have you ever experimented with like a day or few day fast what happens yeah. there do you go low or do you stay normalized or yeah good question um fasting is actually really interesting with diabetes because it's it can be a tool that reveals how much insulin you require on a 24-hour basis with no food coming in 
So it's called your basal insulin requirements, which means like your background insulin. So when you have diabetes, you inject, if you're injecting multiple times a day, like I am with a pen, you inject with all your meals and that's your short acting or rapid insulin. So that's like 15 minutes, it's in your bloodstream. At about an hour, it's peaking how much is in there and then it slowly goes out of your system over the next four or five hours. The other insulin that you take is once or twice a day. It's called your basal. It's like a background insulin that lasts for you know up to 24 hours and it's like a just this low-level insulin that's sitting in your bloodstream for 24 hours. That basal insulin gives you an indication of how well does your body tolerate glucose over 24 hours when you're not eating any meals, right? So if you require very large amounts of basal insulin just to keep you steady over 24 hours, then that's an indication that you're probably not that insulin sensitive and that your tissues aren't taking up glucose as well as somebody else who maybe has very low basal requirements. So if you only need a a small amount of basal insulin um, to keep you in range over the day, that's an indication that your tissues are, you know, receptive to that glucose, takes it up easily, right? So fasting is a really good way to figure out how much basal do you need? Because you're not going to be eating, you don't have to take the short acting, the other insulin, right? So of the total insulin you take in a day, it's made up of your your mealtime insulin plus your basal that equals your total insulin. On a day that you do a fast and you're not eating any meals, you don't need to worry about the mealtime insulin, you can figure out how much basal you need to stay in range for 24 hours. So it can be quite a good tool to use every now and then. Um, I definitely did use it a fair bit. I wouldn't do like 24 hour fasts, but I would do, you know, 18 to 20 hours and I have a small eating window, but, in the fasting period, yeah, you stay, I would personally, I would just stay in range and not worry about any fluctuations at all. And it would give me an understanding of how much basal do I actually require. And if I noticed that um, my basal requirements were hot, this didn't happen to me, but I'm saying this could be a situation mm-hmm. that other people could use. If you try to a fast and you notice that your basal insulin, so the amount of insulin you need to stay in range over the day when you're not eating is really, really high, that's an indication that you probably need to improve your insulin sensitivity by maybe building a bit more muscle, exercising a little bit more, um, changing some of the food that you eat in those meals. Maybe there's too much saturated fat in your diet and you're becoming a little bit insulin resistant. So I think fasting is a good tool and I think it sh- it'll show you a little bit about your diabetes, your particular, because everyone's, everyone's different, but it'll, it'll show you, it'll give you a lens into your particular condition. Mm, yeah. Have they, have, have they ever done any studies on that, taking people with... I know they have with type 2 diabetes, but type 1, obviously, very different. Um, but, like, multi-day, just out of curio- curiosity, if, you know, each day you would maybe need less or more or... I don't yeah. know. I, I'm just intrigued by it. Very good question. I'm not aware of any studies, but I'm, I would say that there, there have been. It can be a little bit dangerous in that, mm-hmm. let's say you give a basal insulin dose and you start this 24 hour or 48 hour fast and that dose is too high. Once you've given the injection, that insulin's Uh, in, you're not getting that insulin out. So uh, now you're, let's say you overdose the basal insulin. Now you're at risk of going low. So if you're in a CGM and you get alerts and alarms and you can see over the day, like minute to minute almost what your blood glucose is doing, I think it's safe. It's fine. And as long as you have glucose nearby, in case you're going low, you just quickly eat something, you'll be fine. But there is a risk of, there probably is a risk of going low if you fast for long periods of time 
not eating any meals and you have too much insulin on board. That could be a risk. Um, but I'm gonna, that's my homework. I'm going to look into some studies in fasting in type 1. I think that's an interesting topic. Yeah, cool. I had, I had um, Dr. Alan Goldhammer on. Do you know him from True yeah. North Health yep. Clinic? Um, and he, I know, does it with type 2 diabetes where he'll... Yes. He'll fast people for 30 days and, you know, heal their type 2 diabetes. And he's right. done all kinds of different diseases. But uh, I'd be really interested to know mm. uh, on the type 1, just how that affected you as you went through a multi-day yeah. um, fast. I, I, can guess, I can guess what would happen. And I'll, I'll, yeah. I will chase up some studies if I can find. But I would say... Over the, t- over the course of multiple days, if you're doing, say, a multi-day fast, your insulin sensitivity would improve a lot because you're not having any food input that's going to potentially interfere with how insulin signaling works. I would say you're going to lose weight and any weight loss, especially in type 2, any weight loss, no matter how you achieve it, whether it's from a calorie deficit, whether it's from fasting, a keto diet, a plant-based diet, whatever, if you can lose weight, you're going to improve insulin sensitivity. You may even re- reverse insulin resistance, right? So, uh, you, you know, even if you're, you have type 1, you're, we're not immune, like we're not, we're still on the spectrum of insulin sensitivity and resistance. You can have insulin resistance as a type 1, right? So you're just a resistance to the insulin that you inject. So I would say if you lose weight doing a multi-day fast and you actually clear some lipids out of the cells that it sort of interferes with how insulin is signaled, um, that you would, yeah, you'd see better blood glucose control and better insulin sensitivity. Mm. Yeah. I'll chase it up though. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Do you notice a difference the next day? Say say you do go out with, you know, a couple of your mates and have a couple beers then you sleep three hours, you know, for the night. Do you notice a difference with what you have to do at each meal, insulin-wise? Like, does that does that completely throw off how your body reacts to your nor- your normal typical meals? Yeah, you wouldn't believe yeah. at, you wouldn't believe how yeah. much it's it's wild. So really, yeah. Day after a sleepless night, insulin requirements are up. So my ratio, which say is usually one to twenty on a good day is now one to 10. So I need double the insulin to metabolize the same amount of carbohydrate. So way more insulin is needed, um, less glucose tolerant, which means that what I do, if, if it's very infrequent that that happens, and if it does happen, it's usually like a sleepless night for some other reason. It's not because I've gone out and had too many drinks, but sleepless night, or maybe I'm traveling and jet lagged or whatever, I will reduce my carb intake the next day just because I'm so I'm so intolerant to it that next day mm-hmm. that it's just easier to keep carbohydrates low for that day, eat a little bit more of those healthy fats and get more, a little bit more protein. Um, but it is noticeable. And there's some studies that show, you know, as little as two, uh, two nights of being sleep deprived in normal healthy population, not even diabetic, show insulin resistance uh, within the next couple of days. I think there's a study even showing five to seven nights of being sleep deprived and their glucose tolerance just goes down and down and down. So you, yeah, definitely going to notice a difference. And you, interestingly and counterproductively, you're, you crave sweeter foods um, the, de- you know, the, night, the day after a sleepless night. So it's like you're less tolerant to the glucose, but you're craving it. 
So it's like mm-hmm. your body is like trying to get that glucose in, yet your insulin and glucose system is a little bit out of whack. So it's a tricky one to navigate. Yeah. Yeah, you you, you crave the crappy food, right? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So interesting. Is yeah. there anything other than what we've talked about, sleep or, um, you know, bad food, obviously, but is there anything else that maybe people wouldn't be aware of that throws off um, you as a, as a type one diabetic, because I feel like, and I ask that not just for type one diabetics, but I feel like you have like all this data on a daily basis and you can see these things in real time when kind of your average person doesn't. Mm. And maybe what isn't obvious to the average person, like, Oh, I slept, you know, five hours instead of eight you see that difference with all that data, whereas the average person thinks they're probably getting away with it. Yes. Are there, are there any other things that maybe throw it off that we wouldn't typically think of? Yes, definitely. Uh, stress. So mm. long-term chronic stress. Yes. That's going to also impact for sure. Your glucose tolerance, how much glucose your liver is pushing out. And I think the, a good example was when I was on that ketogenic diet I was on that very, very low carb diet, training extremely hard um, and stressing my system physically, but not replenishing my glycogen properly. And over time, that morning blood glucose that was spiking, or should I say elevated, was an indication that my liver was pushing glucose out overnight, but my liver was not sensitive enough to insulin to turn off that tap. So when you're insulin sensitive, your pancreas will produce the insulin, secrete it out, that will reach the liver and it'll say to the liver, hey, we're good. We've got so much glucose in the bloodstream. You can chill out, like stop pushing glucose out. And then that message is blunted and all of a sudden the liver goes, all right, we're done. No more glucose being pushed out. Then the glucose in your blood will go into the cells and you're all fine. If you're insulin resistant at the liver, that message to turn off will not work. Right, and that also happens when you're stressed chronically. So chronic stress is a big one. Acute stress is even a big one. So I remember this one day, uh, shortly after being diagnosed, I had like a, a an altercation with somebody, um, where it was like a almost a, a fight over something silly, which we won't talk about. But just <laughs> that, even just that response to to that moment of that fight or flight, like adrenaline spikes your blood glucose straight away and then for hours after that i couldn't i couldn't bring it back down because i had this like you know sympathetic nervous system was just in overdrive and i couldn't bring it back down so it taught me how to manage those even those daily sort of things like even just sitting in traffic on the way to work or getting annoyed that you're running late or all of those little stresses just trying to like figure out a way to center and, and hold hold it together um so yeah acute, acute and chronic stress acute stresses are le- way less problematic I think that that's something, again, that like you mentioned as well, like sitting in an ice bath is an acute stressor, but you only do it for four minutes, right? The long term is probably really good for you. If, you're, if your body thinks you're sitting in an ice bath all day, every day, yeah, that's terrible, right? And that's mm-hmm. the same thing with these little acute stresses over the day. As long as they're like quick stresses and, and it's over, fine. Exercise is a stressor. Ice, cold water immersion is a stressor. Um, sauna, whatever. It's the chronic low grade all day every day anxieties negative thoughts um 
you know, the feeling the burden of, of whatever it is around you always on your shoulders, that's sort of the stress that you'd want to try alleviate over time because I think it can be a bit of a problem. Yeah, for sure. So, dude, tell us about the book. We're getting, we, we're a little over an hour. You have a few more mi- minutes? You okay? Yeah, you no, a few we're good. More minutes? Of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, um, tell us, t- yeah, tell us about the book, why you wrote it, um, what's in there. Give us a rundown. Yeah, so I, re- I released a training program and an ebook as a sort of like a bundle um, a few weeks ago now. So it's just sort of early days since the launch. Um, look, essentially, this, this book is the most evidence-based strength, hypertrophy, and cardio training book that I could put together. I, I looked through all the research. I combined it with everything that I'd figured out over the years of, you know, I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm a diabetes educator, I've been living with type 1 diabetes. So I've had this like real world firsthand experience with all these things. And, uh, you know, a lot of the community online were asking for like, how, how should I train to build muscle? I want to get stronger. What, how should I do my cardio? I want to get fitter. All of these questions and the scientific research around these topics is very robust. There's tons and tons of sports science on all of these things. So I did my best to go through the literature and I wrote a 50-page ebook, you know, summarizing what does literature say right now? If you want to get stronger, if you want to gain muscle, and if you want to get fitter. And I call it Bigger, Stronger, Fitter because uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and then I provide people with uh, an eight-week program. So there's actually there's three programs in it. There's a cardio-only program. And you, you do cardio three times a week in different zones. So we spoke about zone two a little bit, but one of the one of the um, workouts is zone five. So it's a, it's a high intensity interval style workout. One is a zone two, which is a bit longer duration, lower intensity, and then the other is that zone three four. Right. So you've got these three separate types of cardio because I feel that a lot of people do. They do their cardio just sort of mindlessly, like they'll just go on a run or they'll just jump on a bike or with no understanding of what energy system is used at what uh, workout you're doing. Like there's completely different energy systems and the adaptations that the body goes through are so different. You know, if you only did zone two compared to somebody who only did zone five, very different adaptations in terms of what happens mm-hmm. in the body. So I made sure that the cardio program has all, the, all of the zones, but separated nicely over the week, eight-week program. And then I've, I've got another program that's a uh, strength and hypertrophy, sort of upper-lower in the gym sort of based program if you want to get bigger and stronger. And then another one that combines the two. So there's so much in there. And I, you know, I thought people, the, the best way that people are going to do a program if they understand the why. Like why, why am I telling you to do eight weeks, this many days a week, these are the exercises, sets and reps, etc. If they don't even know the, the justification or the rationale behind it, which is why I wrote the, the book. I thought just once they read through this book and understand it, so much easier to implement the actual practical side of it, which is the, the, the training, which is the fun part. So, yeah, I think if people want to get the best of all of those worlds of strength, hypertrophy, and fitness. You can do it all at once. A lot of people think you need to periodize and just do strength training for eight weeks and then just do you know hypertrophy at eight and just do cardio. I think I've come up with a, a way that you can definitely do it all and, and get the, the best of both. Yeah, are you typically doing it all on a... I do, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoy, I love doing resistance training and I've fallen in love with cardio more and more as I've gotten older. Um, I used to be kind of like fearful of cardio that it was going to interfere with my strength and hypertrophy gains, but 
I mean, the amount of cardio that you have to do to actually get an interference effect is so high and so unlikely. And I imagine you do the same isn't it, as a triathlete. Like, you know how important strength training is for, for your endurance uh, work as well. And they, they cross over and vice versa. When you're fitter from doing cardio, I believe you perform better in, in the gym. It's happened to me. I felt it. Um, and I know a lot of people who've, who've sort of added cardio into their, their regime and they've improved a lot in the, in the gym as well. So I think, I think get the best of both. Why not? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I used to be a, you know, seven days a week gym guy. Then when I got into an endurance, first few years in, in endurance, I was trying to lose weight so I could get faster. Right. But after a few years, I quickly realized how important the weight training was. Yes. And I at least had I at least had to keep up, you know, body weight weight training, you know, stability stuff. Right. Um, you know, some body weight squats, pull ups, that that sort of stuff to um prevent injury, but also just so when I, you know, am trying to throw down the last mile of, of a triathlon or something that I have the strength and I have I still have that, you know, kind of fast twitch muscle yeah. ability to do it. Exactly. Um, so, what, so, what does your ratio look like at the moment on like sort of a week to week basis? I'm doing right now because it's like full on season. Like I'm doing like I did a Ironman event uh, a week and a half ago. Yeah, so I do a sprint triathlon this week. I got another Ironman event uh, like third week of July. So I'm doing probably th- at least one or two per month over the summer. So I'm I'm way less than I would in the winter. I'm doing yep. like you know, a day or two a week of, you know, just body weight. Uh, stability is what I find, like, really, really helpful. Right. Um, because when you're putting in big hours, you know, out running or, or, or cycling, um, you know, just keeping the joints strong yes. um, and nothing breaking down is kind of, like, the most important aspect of what I do in the gym right now. Right. So you, you, you basically have... Your in-season is all about racing and performance, less about yep. getting stronger and obviously building muscle. It's not not a, not really the, the most important uh, priority. But off-season is where you can put in that hard work to sort of yeah. build stronger off- joints, stronger muscles. Off-season, get- I'm doing more weights. I'm doing more like three days a week. I'm still training my normal endurance schedule, but right. um, you know, I'll, I'll dial it back a little bit and I'll do more weight training in the off-season, yeah. And do you feel an interference effect of the cardio on your strength development? So like, let's say your goal was to improve your squat or deadlift, um, but you're also doing running and riding and swimming. Do you think that that gets in the way of developing that strength? I don't think it gets in the way, but I think it's obviously a little more taxing. Like if, if you go out and you ride your bike for, or you're, you know, in the winter when I am lifting, I'm on the bike trainer for a two, three hour ride, you know, and I go squat, it's gonna, it's gonna yeah. feel heavier. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is why I say, this is, the reason I ask that is this, what I, I tell people is, people think that if they do a 30 minute zone two run around their local park, that that's going to interfere with how much muscle and strength they can build. And the literature on the interference effect is, it's pretty clear now that you have to do Iron Man level endurance, basically, to have an interference effect on your strength and, and a hypertrophy, right? It's, it's obvious that at some point, if you're doing hours and hours of running, which has this like eccentric loading, so you're actually like breaking down muscle as you just like 
sort of Mm -hmm. slowing down the body as it's hitting the pavement every time hours on the bike hours in the pool yeah that's of course that's going to interfere a little bit with how much muscle you can build and how strong you are going to be under certain uh, exercises but for most people just doing a standard just health and wellness style cardio program not trying to be an elite endurance athlete the interference effect is very very minimal and you're still going to get a net benefit of how much muscle you can build and how strong you're going to get so that's why when i did the programming i made sure that each of those cardio workouts were essentially the minimum effective dose what is the minimum amount you need Mm -hmm. to get the cardiovascular adaptations and metabolic adaptations from this training but still you're going to perform great in the gym and build muscle and I think that that's mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, in the bodybuilder community, the biggest myth is that like, don't do cardio, it'll kill your gains. Right. But it's like, the heart is way more important than your biceps. <laughs> you want to, we need cardiovascular fitness if you want to, if you care about longevity. Um, I would pr- probably, to be honest, I would prioritize cardio. Strength, of course, strength of your bones and muscles is extremely important as well for longevity, but if you were deciding how much to, to give towards cardio and strength, a couple days a week for strength and resistance is enough. Majority of the time, I would say you want to be doing cardiovascular training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, I loved your post. Uh, you had a post recently I saw um, you were doing a, a muscle, uh, muscle ups. Yeah. And you were like, yeah, I can't do as many as I did like a couple years ago because I'm eating plants now. Um, and then I, I think you said, I think you said, and then obviously you said that's not true. It's because you haven't prioritized that movement. And I love that because I think so many people put so much emphasis on the food when it comes to building muscle or reaching their goals, which is obviously from a longevity, health standpoint, et cetera, is incredibly important in recovery standpoint and all that good stuff. But people confuse just not doing the work with something they're eating. Like I, I always say, like when people ask me about protein, 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 and all this shit, I'm like, dude, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's your triathlon or you're trying to bench 400 pounds, it's the consistent work day in and day out. That's going to get you the result. Like stop focusing on, it's not the protein. No, no. It's the consistent work. A hundred percent. People forget how important the stimulus is. The stimulus. It's yes. the stimulus. Like what is the exercise that you're doing and what is the stimulus that is going to cause an adaptation? If you only ate protein for the next year and you ate 300 grams of protein a day, you're not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He doesn't look like that because he eats protein. He tra- it's the stimulus. It's getting into the mm-hmm. gym, training in the way that is going to give you the adaptation that you want. Like if you want to get bigger, you get, you got to train. You got to put it in. And whether you're eat- and to be honest, I think the protein. Uh, I guess the bodybuilding community has, has popularized you needing two, what do they say like two grams per pound of body weight. I just don't think you need that much. I don't eat that much protein. I definitely don't. I probably have about 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight. Um, sometimes less. I, I'm not that focused on it like I used to be. Um, but it's the stimulus. It's like, what are you doing? What training are you doing? That's that's where you're going to get the adaptation way, way beyond how much protein you eat. So Yeah. yeah. I, I think people that have achieved a certain physique or fitness level understand that. But... Yeah a lot of people that haven't and they've struggled with weight and they've struggled with, you know, 
their physique and things like that, they put so much emphasis on, on the food when the mm. reality is they just don't fully comprehend the amount of consistency and dedication you need yeah. to get there. Yeah, the amount of work you have to put in over so many years is like, if, if, you, can, if you can commit to anything and you want to achieve like a physical pursuit and you want to maybe change your, how, how your body looks or improve your fitness or gain, that has to be number one. Like, it's this, you've got to put in the bloody work. That's the hardest part, right? Like, you've got to put the work in. Nobody became a good endurance athlete in overnight or in a few weeks or months. It's like years and years. In fact, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, you'll know better. My understanding is that some of the best endurance athletes peaked relatively later in their in their sort of career or, or like sort of older not older athletes but you have these older guys who've been doing it for longer are probably doing better than the sort of like young prospect who just came onto the scene because they've put in the, those years of work and they've just like nailed it and mastered it over such a long period of time that they're able to actually delay when they peak and it ends up being later have you noticed that like some of the best marathoners or ultra guys especially in endurance like i mean even like kipchoge the best you know world record marathoner in the world you know he's 38 now i think and he's i mean 36 through 38 years old is has been his peak because it's just he's stacked you know at this point he's stacked 20 25 years of running and his system is just so adapted to it exactly um and yeah i mean that's a great example yeah Yeah. you see it in the ultra yeah the ultra endurance world a lot um probably less so in the like the more fast twitch sprint size categories of of training like you're not seeing i I might be wrong but i don't think you're seeing like older power lifters winning competitions probably a little bit different in terms of like the modality but definitely in, in the ultra world you're seeing older guys have just stacked in that work for such a long for time sure. and it pays off you just got to stay stay in it for as long as you can for sure well drew man this has been awesome um is there anything you want to leave us with that we haven't haven't covered anything um you think is important or anything else you want to say mate i've had a great time i think we've covered a lot uh a lot of different topics um i mean i guess just to close it out going back to what we just spoke about it's zooming out not not over getting too granular on the little things that actually aren't that important and it's sticking to the things that we know are important long term we want to be in this for a long time we want to be performing well for a long time what are the things that matter and i think that the newest trend or gadget or device is is just it's misleading right what we need to focus on is what we know it's the pillars of health right so for me that's predominantly whole food as many plants as possible exercising in a range of modalities so don't neglect cardiovascular fitness don't neglect strength and resistance training very important for bone health longevity don't neglect the little things like stress and sleep it's just it's the boring message there's nothing sexy about it but it is that overall like Make sure that you get those big pillars in place. That's going to build your foundation. Don't fall for the little trends that are popping up on Instagram and social media and try your best to just step away and like observe it from a distance and ask yourself, 
is that actually going to serve me long term or is this just a little quick biohack and a quick fix? If it is a quick fix and a biohack, it's probably not going to be the longevity solution. I think the longevity solution we know is more simple than people think. It's you've got to get those pillars in place and commit to them for many, many, many years. And that's going to get you where you want to go. Beautifully said, man. And it's it's Drew's Daily Dose everywhere? Pretty much. Yeah, drewsdailydose.com, Drew's Daily Dose on Instagram. More active on Instagram. So yeah, it'd be fun to, to connect with your, your community there as well. Love it, man. Well, thank you so much. Mate, thank you. Had a blast. Appreciate it. Beautiful, dude. That was that was great stuff. Mate, that was really great. great stuff. I love uh, not knowing where the conversation's going to go, so that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> good, good. I hope it was all right, and um, I'll have it up, uh, you know, probably by early next week at the latest. Yeah, mate, let me know what, like, sort of assets I can post, like even just little clips and... Um, if you create any any stuff, yeah, shoot I'll me. I'll send you, yeah, I'll, I'll message you every every clip I make. I'll probably make three or four. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great, yeah. The clips are probably the best way to, to share it, I think. I mean, I'm also happy to do, um, I don't know, like, if you send out EDMs or any of that, but I think, like, just social media clips is, is the best way to send it out. Yeah, totally, agree. Awesome. Mate, that was fun. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we finally did it. We Hopefully, we'll do another one I know. Uh, one day. I know, man. And I'll, I do have to get over there at some point. Mate, so if you do, I, I will most definitely hit, hit me up. up. Yeah, and Simon and I will, will look after you, so let, let me know. I love it. I love awesome, it, man. Bro. Well, I'll, I'll let you go. Have a good day over there. You too. Speak to you soon. All right, man. Take Cheers. care.